Welcome to the Swim Swim Podcast. I'm your host, Coleman Hodges. Joining me today, I've got a very special guest. He is a five-time Olympian for Trinidad and Tobago. He's an NCAA champion. He's an Olympic medalist, World Championships medalist, Pan American Games champion. Today, we've got George Bavel. George, how's it going? Hello, Coleman. Uh, it's a great honor to be on this podcast with you. I'm a big fan. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm also I'm also a big fan. Like I said before, I've been I've been seeing your name and results uh, since since the very infancy of my swim fan days, um, and it's very cool to sit down and talk with you. We're going to get into um, a myriad of topics, but first, um, I'd like to start with what you're doing now. Um, since retiring from the sport of swimming, how, how have you been occupying your time? Hmm. Well. Um... I found a way, um, I got into blockchain technology and these digital assets like Bitcoin, and I invest and trade in these. And it's, um, it takes a lot of uh, keeping up just to stay on top of things. And in um, the freedom this allows me, I've gone around and studying things that I really enjoy, things that I'm very passionate about that I think are life enhancing. So um, since I, well, to backtrack, Right after I finished swimming in Rio, which was my fifth Olympics, I'd been in it a while, I immediately continued with a plan to start a business importing orthopedic braces into Trinidad and for the rest of the Caribbean. We had the agency for this brand from Germany. And then I realized, you know, after doing some deep introspection that um, this wasn't actually what I wanted to do. This was just an expression of my conditioning. This was just uh, based on seeking security. And that, that way of life, running that business would not have made me happy. And it took a great leap of faith to, to walk away from that. I thought it was a good idea. Gave the business to my uh, partner. And I made a list of all the things that I wanted to learn. And then um, I continued to go through this list one at a time, seeking out the best teachers I could find to teach me. And eventually the idea was to learn these things, practice them, and then teach them, which is a continuation of the, the way I viewed my swimming, which was as a path to self-mastery, gaining more self-awareness and more self-control, and using my swimming path to grow as a person. So I wanted to continue that. And it took me into becoming a freediving instructor. You know, free diving is not jumping off high things. It's where you dive very deep in the ocean while you hold your breath. And it's kind of like becoming an underwater stuntman in a way. And I was tempted to go into competitions for it. But then I realized, you know, I have nothing to prove to anyone anymore. anymore. I have nothing to prove to myself anymore. If I'm going to do that. Let me just use it as a way to enjoy experiencing the ocean and as a way to um, help other people gain more self-awareness and self-control. And then I got into like permaculture design, hypnosis and NLP. And then I went pursuing Ayurveda. Ayurveda is um, like Indian traditional medicine. And in it, I found a wealth of wisdom that was 
an operating manual for having a homo sapien organism. There were wise men many thousand years ago who paid a lot of attention to our bodies, our organisms, and they came up with this system that is like an operating manual for how to have a life with the most vitality, how to feel your best, think your best, and be your best version of yourself, health on all levels. So as I started to consume information on this, I just couldn't get enough of it. And um, I think it was, a, I, it was my swimming background that showed that I was a serious person and was able to commit to things. And um, my Olympic medal in, in particular unlocked this door for me. And I got connected to a great teacher in India who used to run an Ayurvedic hospital, who's retired and he now um, has a small practice and he takes students every once in a while. And um, he took me on as a student and it's in the traditional system, they call it the Gurukul system, where it's not um, the academic Western way of memorizing, it's where you actually learn to recognize the patterns and you learn to understand and see for yourself. And before I went, one of the first things he told me was, um, I don't give certificates. And I thought, oh, you know, I need my certificate. Everyone's got to know that I know my stuff. But I'm very glad I, um, that didn't um, dissuade me. And, I've spent um, three, three um, long trips in India, you know, a couple of months at a time over the last three years, studying, learning as an apprentice and um, reading these classical texts that are thousands of years old. And it's something I wanna continue pursuing for the rest of my life. And I've also been pursuing a traditional Amazonian medicine, which is very interesting as well. And in addition to that, just learning the subtle nuances of trading. You know, these things you have to really take the time to learn and the stakes can be quite high. So um, I'm on a path of uh, continuing my self-development. That's That sounds uh, like quite a path. Yeah, and uh, I've been, you know, it's seven trips to Peru, lots of time in the jungle, but it's very interesting stuff. And these um, holistic healing modalities they apply to everything we do. They really uh, focus on the broader context of life and they see health, not just in terms of your physical health, but they know that both of them approach that the body and the mind are not separate. A sick body always comes because of a sick mind that is making sick decisions where we actually want what's bad for us. And we don't want what's good for us, which makes us even sicker. And I think it's very interesting and um, I see this as part of like a second renaissance because of the internet. You know, people out there can have access to this information and if they choose to pursue it and go deep into it, they can find teachers and places to learn. It's very, that's very interesting because I think often <clears throat> we hear about the internet as maybe a negative thing or, or maybe, you know, something that could dissuade us or um, make our mind a little bit sicker, uh, certainly in terms of just distraction and, um, you know, uh, limiting our time outside in the world, getting to know ourselves. Um, maybe, maybe that's just my view on the internet, but, um, that's, that's a really interesting piece of, of, uh, knowledge that a second Renaissance that, that can spread this information. Yeah, and uh, even look at swimming, how this affects swimming. You know, we can go on YouTube and we can see what Adam Peaty is doing in his breaststroke. We can look at Caleb Dressel's technique. I remember when I was young, 
there was like one or two cassette tapes, VHS tapes <laughs> that different families got to borrow. And these cassette tapes got passed around from household to household. Uh-huh. And we learned, oh, okay, that's how you swim freestyle. That's what breaststroke's really supposed to look like. <laughs> it's very, very, very different today. And um, I think this is happening not only in swimming, but in many fields. It's a very interesting time to be alive. So when when you made this list of things you wanted to learn, um, I mean, what, what drew you to this healing category in particular? Um, why did that, why did that draw your interest? You know, I'm also curious, why did that draw my interest? Um, you know, many traditions around the world say that um, there's a certain path and the path goes warrior, healer, sage. And I think of my uh, swimming career in a way, it's a, it's a warrior path. And the Greeks used to say that sport is peacetime war. And if we think about what swimming really is, we are fighting, we are battling, having a battle of will, willpower, of skill, of aggressiveness, of aggression, of toughness. And it's taking place in an element that can kill us if we get too tired. While it might not be an actual physical person-to-person conflict, it is a conflict of individuals' willpower and their strength and their skill and their aggression and even their tactfulness as well. So we must see swimming in that, in that light to really understand it. And then, you know, while I was swimming, it was like, especially in the year, later years where I was coaching myself and um, I was fortunate to go to five Olympics, so I had some longevity in it and I matured a lot as an athlete while I was in the sport and started to take a lot of responsibility for myself and my well-being and my performance. And in swimming, you know, you're training every day and you have a very objective way to measure your health. Am I stronger than I was yesterday? Am I faster? How is my endurance? How's my fitness? How is even my, my mental, my self-talk? Because that's an indicator of health and sickness as well. And, um, you know, I was always seeking to optimize my health because I understood that the more healthy I was, the faster I could recover, the better I could consistently train, and that uh, the greater output my body, my organism would be able to have when I wanted to push it hard beyond its comfort zone in a competition. So um, it was an ongoing process. And then unfortunately, you know, I, I just wish I had discovered these these wisdom systems for health while I was still in the sport competing. I would have done a lot of things differently. I would have been more healthy. I think I would have had greater perform, um, much improved performances as well. And it's very different. It's not based on consumerism. I think in our culture, we kind of get bombarded with, we need to buy this and take this if we need to be healthy. But a lot of the true health tips aren't really, things you have to take it's just lifestyle habits and um awareness you need to have of your organism so So you can keep things in balance before they go too far yeah and so so let's you know like you said you were in the sport for a long time you went to five olympics um you had a full ncaa career at at the university of auburn um you had a, a, a very long international career. Let's, let's go through some of those. Um, Cause I'd love to hear about your perspective on some of these moments then and, and maybe your perspective now. 
Um, so let's, let's take your first Olympics in 2000, um, as a, as a starting point, you know, how, how old were you when <laughs> in 2000? I was, uh, just turning 17. Um, just, that was around the time that I was really coming into my own as a swimmer. And it's very interesting. I qualified for the 2000 Olympics in some very opposite events, the 400 IM, <laughs> the hundred freestyle and the 200 <laughs> IM. I mean, who swims 400 IM and 100 free? Right. But growing up, um, swimming was very small in Trinidad. And we didn't specialize. You know, I was trying to be the best I could be at butterfly, the best I could be at backstroke, at breaststroke, at freestyle, the best I could be at the sprints, the best I could be in the distance events. And you had rivalries with everybody in every event. <laughs> and um, that kind of came together in the 200 IM for me. And... Um, that was my primary focus around that time and leading into the years afterwards. So, um, yeah, the Trinidad was my main focus coming into that Olympics. And that was sort of the culmination of just trying to be as good of a swimmer as I could be. And it, I've always thought of the 200 IM as the competition that says, who's the best swimmer? Mm -hmm. oh, so I, I really wanted to be the best swimmer. So I pursued the 200 IM. So what, I mean, as a 17 year old kid swimming, swimming three individual events and an Olympics, um, was, what was that experience like? I mean, was that a, a total shock for you in terms of just the level of competition? Yes. You know, it was awe inspiring. I think it, um, I came away from that experience, very excited about the potential of, for the, of my path in the sport, where it could take me, um, you know, I could never have imagined what it was like to swim in front of a crowd. I think that swimming stadium was huge, maybe 17,000 people, something like this. It was the biggest up until that point in time. And of course, in Australia, swimming was very popular, which was nice because, you know, in, in other parts of the world, Trinidad swimming is not popular. And if you're in America, you're, it's NBA, it's the NFL. <laughs> swimming is not that mainstream as well. So it was nice to be in a place where swimming was celebrated like Australia. And I came out of that experience, you know, just very excited about the sport. And I, I'm always learning. I'm always looking at what the best people are doing and trying to emulate it and then trying to put my own twist on it because we're all, all different, you know. And um, I think I learned a lot. It was a, a very powerful learning experience for me, definitely, those Olympics. I mean, do you, did you, do you remember specific takeaways you had um, walking away from those 2000 Sydney Olympics? Yeah, I think um, specifically my freestyle improved a lot from um, looking, spending a lot of time looking at what Peter van den Hoogenband was doing. Yeah, I started to have a little bit more of a loping stroke for my 200 freestyle. Mm -hmm. Very much more high elbow. You know, it's interesting, you, you're a young swimmer and you get to be at the warm-up pool with these superstars. And you have your goggles on and you're looking underwater and you're studying and you're like looking at what time their coach says they did for their split. Mm -hmm. It was a very good experience, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, that seems really cool. Um, I mean, and to have the legends that were at those Olympics, Peter Vanden Hoogen Band, Ian Thorpe, who's, you know, they, they, their times stand up today, 20 years later. Um, and it's pretty incredible. Uh, mm -hmm. 
I'm sure as, as a, as a young kid coming up in the sport to, to share a warm up pool with them. Yeah. It sounds awe inspiring. Um, and it's so, so, so looking back with, I mean, at 17 years, I, you, you don't have a lot of world experience. You don't have a lot of life experience, but, but looking back, is there, is there anything you would have done differently with the knowledge you have now? No, no, it was, it worked out very well for me. And, um, it actually kickstarted um, a whole new level of enthusiasm for training and for the sport. And I really rode that wave into the 2001 world championships. Whereas uh, just turning 18, cause my birthday's in July. Um, I was in the finals and I came fourth in the 200 IM. And I had this um, winning streak that was, I don't know, three years or maybe four years. I can't remember exactly. I'm not losing a head-to-head 200 IM race. And at the heats of that Fukuoka 2001 World Championships, I was slated to be in one of the last heats with the Olympic champion, Massimiliano Rossellino. And, um, you know, like, this is my perfect record. Oh my gosh, you know, you don't want to lose this perfect record. And somehow I managed to win the heat and keep the record alive. And I progressed to the semifinals and then into the finals where um, I uh, had a huge breakout swim at that meet, swimming 201s. And that opened the, the way, kind of <sighs> let people know that I was out there. And then I was able to be recruited for different universities and I chose Auburn. So that was sort of the segue into my college career. The, you went 201s at the 2001 World Championships. The what, God, what a great streak. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really third world. If you have to understand where I'm coming from, Trinidad, if you're swimming in Germany or Canada or the UK, Australia, the United States, you can't imagine what swimming in Trinidad, where I'm coming from, was like. It's very third world. It's very humble. Even the pools were very dirty. You would get skin infections, air infections, rashes. The pH was always off, so our teeth would be um, on edge, as they say. So to come from those kind of conditions, it was interesting because I'm coming to the world champs and like my family's buying my ticket. You know, nobody's funding me. I'm like, staying in the okay. hotel at my own expense. I'm buying my own suit at the competition. And I'm somehow in the finals competing with people from teams that have everything taken care of. Yeah. So that's where it started. And that's where we... And in Trinidad, we have a difficult culture, unfortunately. We tend to, to celebrate uh, mediocrity in the easy way out. So if you're willing to go and do the hard stuff, you have to do the hard stuff alone. And I think a lot of athletes don't do well because they're from Trinidad. They do well despite being from Trinidad. So that was another, another hindrance and hurdle I had to overcome. And um, I was very fortunate to have an IOC solidarity scholarship at Bulls. Back then, Bulls was a really um, notorious school for very hard training, toughened me up a lot and um, allowed me to really like be around a group of very focused swimmers. Otherwise, in Trinidad, I'd be doing it alone. When were you at Bulls? 2000, I uh, came in 2000 and then um, 2000 to 2002. Okay, nice. Uh, so before that, um, I mean, like you said, those are hard conditions. That sounds intense and it sounds lonely. How were you, what, I mean, what motivated you to 
make an Olympic team at, at the age of 17 when it was so easy to not make that decision? I can definitely, um, I can't take all the credits. Um, some great coaches came and really uh, inspired us um, from Trinidad, Hayden Noalo, Edward Tuberoso at the time, later on with Anil Roberts. Um, and Edward Tuberoso in particular really instilled in me a work ethic and he glorified like James, um, Brian Goodell and he sort of um, painted this very heroic idea of distance swimming and how that was the toughest person in the sweet struggle. So he put a good work ethic in us there. And, um, but one thing about coming from a place like Trinidad is you've never seen anybody who's been great. You can't conceptualize that it's possible for you to be great. It's not like you can say you can be like a Michael Phelps. There was no Trinidadian Michael Phelps, which is, is difficult because you don't have that, um, those type of icons, role models. But at the same time, you don't start off swimming to be great. You start off swimming because you love swimming and you fall in love with it and you fall in love with the journey and the, the learning, the practicing, and then the constant challenges where you're tested. And then you learn early on that these challenges, um, every time you make a challenge, you get more willpower and more confidence so that the next challenge is even easier. But if you, if you don't make the challenge and you take the easy way out, you give up. You lose willpower, you lose confidence. So the next challenge is even harder to make. When you understand this early on, you can kind of chart your course up the mountain, one challenge at a time, gaining strength and willpower and confidence. And you learn how to learn, you learn how to practice and it's very humble and you're doing it, you know, um, yeah, it, it's, I don't know, I'm kind of a, an anomaly really. But now there's good facilities, there are up and coming swimmers, we see Dylan Carter's performing amazingly well. So hopefully I've changed the swimming culture. I mean, it, it certainly seems like you brought about so, uh, some change. Yeah. As, as you said, Dylan Carter just, just got done, uh, wrecking havoc in the ISL. He, you know, he had a, he had really a breakout season, but different topic for a different time. Uh, just getting started. He's going to be great. Follow his progress. I, I, I am too, for sure. Um, so, uh, you were at bulls, you know, you get to bulls from 2000 and 2002, um, who were you training with when you, while you were there? I was training under a coach by the name of Larry Shove. Um, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. Um, and um, some other swimmers, a handful from the United States, a couple from abroad who um, were very focused and we had a good group, very conscientious, and we had a culture that really celebrated excellence there was no option of even taking the easy way out, which was nice, which was very good to be in that environment because in those years of uh, the development for young people, it's so easy to get swept up with so many negative influences in the culture because we come, we have to admit our, our culture is pretty sick and um, being in that environment was very healthy and kind of kept me focused and I'm very yeah. grateful for it. And so then what, why, why did you choose Auburn? Uh, what what drew you to Auburn? You know, I chose Auburn because of David Marsh. Mm -hmm. I liked him um, off the bat as a coach. I liked his philosophy. He was um, 
very uh, assuring. Um, and I lo- liked his philosophy, you know, it wasn't all about the distance. I'd kind of had enough of that. I wanted to do more quality work. And um, I was excited about being on, on some relays. Mm-hmm. And I had a great um, experience at my, recru- at my recruiting trip there. I liked what the team was offering and I chose it over like USC, Stanford, Florida, and Tennessee. Yeah. And, and so you get to Auburn and you, you have a f- four years there. You win the 200 IM your freshman season at NCAAs. I, I don't think you swam. Did you swim the same two event schedules any time during your career, maybe junior and senior years? Um, at NCAAs, you mean? Yeah. Well, it had to do with some injuries that I was suffering from. Okay. So, so I just really competed in the, um, the first two years were the, were the same. And then the second two years were different. Mm-hmm. And at the time, you know, Dave Durden was the assistant coach at Auburn. And, you know, he's gone on to make a really um, well-acclaimed name for himself at Cal Berkeley, winning championships there. So it was a great place to be at a great time. Um. I mean, I know this is a big question, obviously, but uh, I mean, can you can you just tell me a little bit about your time at Auburn? What what you gained there? Maybe a couple highlights um, from that illustrious career. Um, I was part of the first class. I don't know if this still is true, but at the time, well, I haven't kept up. But at the time, it was um, the first class ever to graduate without ever losing. Three other swimmers and myself, we won every, every meet we ever participated in. So that was something special. And um, David had um, created a very healthy, positive culture that um, was all about excellence and pursuing excellence and this, this synergy. And some of these dry land, I would call it um, team building, um, character building, initiatory type um, exercises with a great um, strength coach called PK and of course Dave Durden and we we really had a culture that celebrated excellence and was very focused and because of that we were able to continue this winning streak and of course I improved a lot you know you're you're sharpening your skills amongst fantastic athletes every single day trying to be stronger trying to be faster learning what works what doesn't work so it's a great environment to be in and that took me through my freshman year. Then um, that summer, I won the Pan American Games in the two free and the two IM. I was fifth at the World Championships in the two IM. But uh, that was a race where I just went out way too fast. I was too young, too aggressive, not very tactful at that time. Um, then coming into my sophomore year was um, really getting going. I had come into my freshman year with an injury. I tore where the muscles in my forearm attached to my humerus my senior year of high school and kind of healing and recovering in the fall by 2004, being in that very elite environment at Auburn um, was really coming into my own. And I think our 2004 team was the highest scoring team ever at NCAAs. We were very dominant and um, you know, I won the NCAAs again in the two IM. Um, I had 25 all Americans. <laughs> and um, broke the world record in I am, yeah. And then that carried on that momentum into the Olympic season of 2004. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to soak this all in because this is, this is the stuff I grew up on and I came up 
with through the sport you know i remember seeing these results of ncaa's and thinking wow these guys are so fast this is Mm -hmm. pretty pretty cool to watch um so you you, this this momentum gets carried through to the 2004 olympics um what what events were you going to swim at this olympics and, and how was your mindset different heading into them yeah so this olympics was um was not everything wasn't easy in the build-up to the olympics um to get more personal attention i decided to work with my coach from trinidad and we were training in trinidad and um in just before i left to go to the olympics i strained my shoulder injured my shoulder quite badly and i couldn't do any freestyle or backstroke for I believe like 12 days up until my first race, which was the 200 freestyle. And I would just be in the Olympic village reading a book at the time and just icing my shoulder all the time. And I was just thinking, oh my gosh, how can this be happening? This is a nightmare. This is everything I'd ever hoped for. Mm. And now I'm having this, um, this challenge. And in a way, I think that, you know, when you're starting off, if it's a path to self-mastery, your, your biggest days come on your best days. But then in order for you to keep growing, just the way life works, your, your biggest days start to come on your worst days. So with this handicap, my freestyle was usually my best event. I was the Pan American champion. I was second at NCAAs in the two free. And I progressed to the semifinals, but was unable to make the finals. I was unable to even do a best time. You know, you taper, you shave, no best times. This is not good. And you're trying 100% because of the hype, the nervousness, the excitement of being in the Olympics. Then the 100 freestyle, I progressed to the semifinals, but was unable to make the finals. That's six races right there. And then coming into the 200 IM, my freestyle was usually my strongest, and it was now one of my weaker, weaker strokes. I knew I really had the fight of my life ahead of me and decided to pace it. So I swam just enough to make the semifinals. Then in the semifinals, my coach at the time and I, Anil Roberts, I was David Marsh was my coach as well, but um, at this games, Anil Roberts was really focused uh, and we were working together. We decided that uh, one of the people we really had to challenge for a medal was Laszlo Che. You know, Laszlo is um, an incredible swimmer and he's gone on to do amazing things. And just if you say you're going to challenge Laszlo, you think, wow, this is, this must be a big race. And um, we knew we had to, to be tactful. So we swam with Laszlo the whole way. I swam with Laszlo the whole way and then slowed up at the 175 and let him dominate the last 25 and took second in the semifinal. Then in the final, you know, I had... I was more tired than I had been. My body didn't feel fast in the warm up. My shoulder was not healing. It was just aggravated. And I just like knew I had to really steal myself for something big. And my spirits were quite low coming into the final. I think I was uh, even pessimistic and it was very easy to, you're so tempted to think those thoughts of, of negativity, of, of doubt. The doubt is always creeping in, you know? And that's the worst time to have the doubt creeping in is before the Olympic finals. Because this was going to be my seventh race in just a few days. I'm struggling, you know, I'm not really doing best times. My shoulder is hurting. And a teammate of mine, Jeremy Knowles, 
he came and uh, before I went to the ready room and he reminded me of something that we called uh, the hammer of justice at Auburn back in the day. The hammer of justice was this idea that if you're in a difficult set or a difficult head-to-head grudge match in a competition and you're getting tired, but the person you're locked in this head-to-head grudge match with is also getting tired. But if you can somehow find extra willpower to speed up unsustainably, you can't maintain the speed more than maybe 10, 15 meters, 20 meters at most, and you can hold out, hold out, they're going to eventually think that you're feeling fresh because you're speeding up and then they'll give up. Psychologically, they'll give up and then they'll slow down. And then when you notice that they're not gaining on you, then you can slow down and you might just have enough gas left in the tank to be able to finish the race, but you broke their will. Uh They're not coming back at you. So that was called, that tactic was called the hammer of justice. And in our championship posters of the celebrating the championship of my freshman and sophomore year, they would like put that name next to my, that title next to my name. And they used to call me the hammer of justice. I don't even, maybe I even gave myself that nickname. I don't even know. We all had a nickname, like pump up names on the team at that time. Mm-hmm. And he reminded me of that. And he drew this, like, there's a photograph afterwards where I'm flexing and it looks like a very bad tattoo, but he drew a, a, a Thor's hammer with lightning bolts on my bicep. And he reminded me of this ability to like, to tap into the, the psychological element, the, the mental power, the willpower from the heart. Even, even if the body's weak, that he was reminding me that my mind and my will were still the same guy who used to drop the hammer of justice on people. That's, I still had that willpower. Really lifted my spirits. And I went from there into the ready room, like ready to fight. You know, this is it. Bring it on. I'm here. If you want to get it, you got to take it from me. Come and get it. And I swam a very tactful race, you know, it was. But every challenge, you know, I touched on this before. Every challenge comes with a moment of weakness. And in the moment of weakness comes the perfect excuse. And it comes when you are at your weakest. And the perfect excuse, it doesn't even feel like an excuse. It, it seems like a reason. You believe it. it. It is perfect. It's the perfect excuse. And the perfect excuse is something that you would be okay with if you accepted it. Because it's perfect. It's so, you know, I was tired. Coming down, the backstroke split. Um, I was out of breath earlier than I usually get out of breath. I felt stiff. I felt tight. My shoulder was hurting. I felt tired. And the excuse of all the races and the shoulder injury and all the struggle was right there for me to take it and just to like not push as hard beyond my comfort zone. And for about 20 minutes there, when I was like feeling like my inner strength diminished, like at my weakest in, in, in an inner way, I was able to resist that temptation to take that perfect excuse and ease up the pace, ease up the pain, ease up the suffering. And once I, by the grace of God, I had what it, I I was able to push through that and I didn't take the excuse to slow down. And I was able to hold this unsustainable rhythm because for our viewers who don't really know what a turned IM is, it's like about maintaining an unsustainable rhythm as long as you possibly can try to 
while demonstrating mastery in all four strokes <laughs> and, and skills in your turns and technique in an element that will drown you if you get too tired. And if you do the 200 I am right, you don't have any more energy after you get to the 150. You somehow have to dig soul-searchingly deep to come home. So down this backstroke leg into the breaststroke, um, I was able to hold out, maintain the rhythm when I just felt like breaking the rhythm, just felt like slowing it up, dropping back. Once that subsided, I had this resurgence of like inner energy that was able to, to hold my willpower strong enough to push my organism be way beyond its comfort zone for a long time and was able to have a, an amazing breaststroke split. In all of the Olympics, it was the second fastest third 50 breaststroke. Only Kitajima in the 200 breast had a faster third 50 and then came home. And um, very something very interesting happened when I touched the wall. Um, it showed Phelps first and showed me second and the person who was below me, a few seconds later, the scoreboard was there. And then it, it flipped them. And second place started celebrating and first place were like, yeah, one, two. And I thought, oh, wow. And I've just accepted it all of these years. But um, some people say that if the race is too close to call and NBC owns the rights to it, they want to make it as exciting as possible for their audience and the TV ratings and um, as appealing and as possible for their sponsors. Yeah. So that was the 2004 Olympics and um, it was the best time despite all of that. It was a, and it was ended up being my last 200 IM ever. I returned uh, long course 200 IM. I returned to the university season and my uh, shoulder healed mm -hmm. and I felt invincible Coleman. I started winning with too much style. I started to play with people. I started to tell my friends when I was going to demoralize opponents. I'd be swimming and then speed up whenever I wanted to speed up and surge. And I was really feeling invincible. And I had a good friend who I pursued the traditional Amazonian medicine with. And he was number one in the world in tennis. And he said that when he was most invincible, when he felt invincible and he had too much swag, too much style, that it was just too easy for him and that he called down upon himself the suffering that came to humble him because every legend and every culture they have similar themes that are woven in and one of these is that pride always comes before the fall and i got too proud i was had too much style too much pride and i called down upon myself a serious injury that came to humble me it's just the way the universe works and in a way, it would have been too easy. So I had to get humbled, had to keep growing. It had to get really hard for me. And that um, suffering was a huge blessing because um, it really humbled me. And I believe the more humbled we are, the more blessed we get. And that nothing really comes from us. It really flows through us. But we're always getting proud of our blessings. So um, I blew out my knee. I tore my PCL completely. Could never do the breaststroke as good well, for years, I couldn't do it at, at all. And I was faced with the fact that I could never be as good as I was. And why do you want to continue in something if you know you can never be as good as you used to be? And my friend that I mentioned in tennis, his opponents learned that they could always hit to his forearm and that he couldn't pivot. He couldn't put his weight on that knee and then come back to the other side of the court. So they would always play that against him. And it was this... Um, 
handicap he had for the rest of his career. So that was my last 200 IM. And then I really had to start over from scratch. You know, I'm swimming on a team. Our team wants to win the championship. I want to win the championship. And whereas my first two years was all about my individual success and my dominance. The second two years was sort of like living vicariously through my teammates and supporting them and just grinding it out. And, you know, I spent most of the year just swimming with paddles and a pool boy. The NCAAs, my knee was still loose, it was terrible, but I was swimming in yards, pushing off with one leg, diving with one leg. Yeah, still in the finals, and, but only freestyle now. And I did so much overuse of pulling that I got terrible tendonitis. So the following year, after having the knee injury, the following year, my senior year, was a terrible year of shoulder injury. So I had two years of just getting beat, really struggling, trying harder, but doing a lot worse very difficult years, um, but forced me to grow a lot and was re really humbled me. And I, I, I decided when I finished, do I really want to keep swimming? And I've always thought of the 200 IM as who's the best swimmer, but there was something very glamorous in my mind about the 50 freestyle. It was who is the fastest? Who's the fastest? And I wanted to test myself and see if I could be fast. So um, I approached Mike Bottom, who had renowned success in the 50 freestyle with swimmers such as Duya Dragania, Gary Hall, one, two in the Athens Olympics and Anthony Irvin and Gary Hall tying for the gold in Sydney. So I approached him and um, I'm very grateful. He really helped me a lot. I've learned a lot from him. He treat, treated me and still does uh, like a son. And I learned how to sprint and then I started to practice it. And then I was testing myself. It's that same philosophy of learning, practicing, testing, learning, practicing, testing. And gradually improved in that event towards, you know, it was what I continued with for many more years. Yeah. And I, I, I had assumed that the progression from 200 IM to 50 free was just kind of a natural thing, you know, as, as, as many swimmers in the sport age their you know, their yardage goes down. They, they start to, uh, hover towards more or gravitate towards more or to, towards shorter events. But that's, I had no idea that that's, that all came from an injury and that that came kind of out of necessity. Um, and so, I mean, what did, what did you learn? How, how do you sprint? I mean, it's very different. Um, where in the 200 events, you can dive in and get tough. You can figure it out in the race. But in a 50 free, you really have to start to have a lot more self-awareness and self-control over your state of arousal. Because you want to be um, pumped up enough to be very aggressive and powerful. But at the same time, you have to be composed enough to hold your breath for the duration of the race and be able to be focused and aware enough to execute the details as perfectly as possible, like throwing 25 bullseyes in a row, one at a time, one at a time. And that took many years actually to learn, um, only towards like the um, 2012 and 13 did I really, really start to, to master that. And then I don't believe I was naturally as fast as some of the top sprinters, I had to really like work to be fast. And many years I would race like 
be very fast, as fast as I could be around 25, but then there'd be a sharp decline, deceleration. And um, I think the best way to think about the 53 is an area under a curve, like a graph. So if I have a graph that has a very high point up here of my top speed, but then my speed decelerates very quickly and finishes quite low down, that overall 53 is not as good as a 53 if I have a much more smooth curve where I sustain the, the speed for longer. The top speed might, might not be as high, but you're going faster for longer. And if you think about the 50 freestyle as an area under a curve, it allows you to even like pace it a little bit. And this is what I started to do into the 2013 World Championships. I was getting the hang of that and um, was able to go 21-51 to attain the bronze in the, in the finals of the World Champs. Having been in like the finals of the Olympics the year before, semifinals in the Olympics in London, world champ finals in 2009, 2011, 2000. But in the buildup to the London Olympics, um, I had a terrible accident in August of 2011 where I had a bruise on my brain from a collision with a dump truck, a subdural hematoma on my brain. And if I got my blood pressure up, I would have had a high chance of having a stroke. So I had to spend six weeks really quiet in bed and I got very skinny, lost a lot of my strength and my fitness. And I had to start that Olympic season again from zero. And I've had a lot of injuries, a lot of comebacks in this career. But you grow, the harder it is, the more it forces you to grow and you have to view it as a, a path to self-mastery. Uh, in 2006, when you had your injury, or sorry, after you were finished your collegiate career, you know, you said, do I really want to do this? Um, having an injury like that, where you're six weeks bedridden, you lose all your strength. Where's the motivation? You know, what makes you want to do it? Mm -hmm. Actually, you know, this uh, credits... There's a podcast called the Social Kick Podcast. I don't think it's good to talk about one podcast on another, but one of the guys behind that, Luke Paddington, um, really helped me a lot, you know, with the motivation to get going. We would do some like cross training when I was just getting back, like running in the mountains, long ocean swims with fins on, um, some circuits in the gym. And I owe him a lot. He really, when I was, when I was very weak and it was very daunting to build up again towards, you know, going to the Olympics when you, when you were just worried about not being able to walk, having a stroke and then maybe not being able to walk for the rest of your life. He really um, lent me a lot of pump, a lot of enthusiasm and um, helped kickstart that Olympic journey. And I'm very grateful. Uh, I just did, I just did a talk with the social kick guys uh, a few days ago after, after the ISL ended. I'm, I'm all about the social kick podcast. They're, they're good guys. Um, but that's, I mean, that's really cool. And again, like you said, that's, I'm, I'm guessing you learn a lot through journeys like that, but that's, uh, I'm, I'm surprised by that one. That sounds terrifying. I mean, you can't get your blood pressure up or, or you might have a stroke. I, you know, um, I used to sneeze sometimes. We all sneeze. I have some allergies. And it was a very stressful time for me. And I remember as a sneezing, a sneezing fit would come on, I would be concerned, is this it? Uh, mm. You know, um, yeah, dark time in my life. 
And on September 26th, my last CAT scan came back that uh, my brain had absorbed the bruise. So, you know, I have my birthday, that's my regular birthday, but on September 26th every year, I celebrate it as my alive day. And on your alive day, you get together with your friends and family, and it's no longer about just you, but it's you're giving everybody an occasion to celebrate life and give thanks for life and really taste your food that night, you know, really feel yourself, be present. I love that, a live day. I feel, I feel like everyone should have it a live day. Definitely. Um, and you know, I think I think we're talking about ways that you can you can have an alive day more than once, right? Or or every day. Every day, um, exactly. Every <laughs> breath is your alive breath. And so so you 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 go on this journey of, of sprint mastery, and um, you know, like you said, you you really got into that zone by 2013. Um, what clicked for you? you know how how were you able to perfect that that graph um, you know, um that meet? i think when i was when i went back to auburn to finish my degree i was swimming with the, um, some really great swimmers matt target um, from australia um, fred bousquet cesar cielo and we were swimming under brett hawk and i had a chance to really sort of um, constantly in practice be measuring myself against people who who were faster sprinters than I was and, um, and learning, seeing what works, what doesn't work. And that carried over into my, when I was coaching myself, working with my Trinidad coach in Trinidad. And then a lot of racing in these World Cups. Yes, um, I had a rivalry with Anthony Irvin where both of us swam like, I don't know, many times underneath 21 seconds in the 50 meters freestyle short course. I think I, I learned and I grew an awful lot as a swimmer through the constant racing in the World Cup circuits. Mm-hmm. And I was getting stronger, you know, every year I was um, gaining more muscle and my, constantly refining my technique. So in 2013, I was very strong and my technique was also the best it had ever been. And my ability to, to, to pace a 50 freestyle, which is such a subtle thing. Mm-hmm. you're going all out but you're still pacing and it takes a lot of practice and self-awareness too and the ability to, to uplift yourself to the right state of arousal as well it takes time to learn these things unfortunately a long, a long time and um, only the swimmers who I think have the longer careers with one event have the time to really get that mastery over these subtleties yeah I want to go back to one thing you said um you're finishing your degree at Auburn. You were training under Brett Hawk, a great sprinter in his own right. And you were with those guys that you had swam with, Matt Target, Cesar, Fred Bousquet, all, all guys who, who, like you said, stayed in the sport for a long time. And I, I would say we're able to have to put, put some mastery into play uh, with their individual races. Um, what, you, you being someone who had trained with them in college, but, you know, weren't necessarily swimming the same events. What did you pick up from them later when, when you were, um, you know, kind of all had the same focus? I think, um, I started to recognize some things I'd seen before with Duye, um, Gary Hall as well. Julia Dragania, Gary Hall, while I was swimming at the race club, I saw this in 
in Caesar and Fred is these people really listened to their bodies. When they were tired, you know, they listened to their body and they didn't, didn't push it too hard. When they felt good and they, they, their body told them, I'm ready, let's go fast. Then they really like unleashed things and let them let things out and went fast. And I was coming from this 200 mentality where I thought of, I had to be going hard every day. Otherwise I, I was wasting the workouts. And it took me some time to mature and learn to listen to my body and that I'm only human. I'm not a machine. I can't, I can't be having this thing crank out hard every day. And to be able to like have a more sustainable approach because I've always been overtraining and then getting tired and injured and taking time to recover then coming back super pumped and enthusiastic and over and eventually getting overtraining, overtrained and exhausted and then swimming very slow it was coming in waves and the way to really do it is to have a more sustainable approach where you're, you're doing the perfect amount to, to stress your body so that it adapts, but not giving it too much work so that you break it down. And I think that's a crucial element in uh, sprint training. You want to give it just enough to adapt, but not enough to break it down so that it's getting slow and exhausted and weak. I, th I think we're seeing a lot more of that um, in modern training today, uh, certainly, you know, Michael Andrew with his ultra short race pace training lends the similar model as to what you're saying, I think. And, you know, even, um, even, even athletes like, uh, Morozov, Chad LaClose, Sarah Shostrom, maybe even Katinka who are using their racing, as as they're training right and they're able to swim really really fast in season um and then and then still go to a world championships or an olympic games and swim even faster there you know it's it it seems like that's a successful we're seeing that that's successful but also it, seems, it just seems like more fun right you get to mm. swim fast more of the time not be not be completely broken down for a majority of the season yes fast to swim fast more of the time i think a good approach the ideal approach it's is it's evolving into being one where you learn to swim fast and then work on swimming faster for longer and the best practice for the big race is to do lots of other races so we, we improve so much through these regular intervals of racing, racing, racing. And it's, you know, to improve, we have to be able to, to get a certain amount of self-control to not just, we're not, we're not just training our body. We need to think of ourselves in terms of um, this duality of we are the horse, but we are also the rider. Now, many athletes mostly focus on training their horse. They work on making their horse stronger and their horse faster and their horse have more endurance, but they're not doing much training to develop their rider. And you don't want to have a $12 million horse in Dubai for the big race. And you don't with a weekend rider on that horse. No, you want to make sure that the rider of the horse is a master. When you have those two paired together, it's very special. And the constant racing allows the rider of the horse to get a little bit more development just by as a natural byproduct of the racing. But I believe the next level of, um, of training of the evolution of the sport is something along the lines of like Shaolin monk warrior 
athletes, swimmers, where we are training the horse, but we are also training the, the, the rider with mental exercises that improve our ability to concentrate and our ability to, to keep the focus throughout the entire duration of the race without the mind wandering even slightly. And to have the willpower, the mind so strong that you can push the organism further outside of its comfort zone for longer. Because our organism is programmed by the intelligence of nature for millions of years of evolution, not to want to go outside the comfort zone. We have to remember that this is subconscious because going outside of the comfort zone meant danger, it meant death. So we're programmed to stay within our comfort zone, especially when we're in a hostile environment like the water on a subconscious level. So the more you can develop this capacity to have will, more willpower and more self-awareness and self-control, you can push yourself further outside the comfort zone, which is giving you two things, a better performance. And also because you're getting pushed further beyond your comfort zone, your organism is going to adapt even more. So you keep pushing the limits of the comfort zone out further and further and further. So that you can be in your comfort zone, which is way beyond what your comfort zone used to be. And I think it takes a lot of uh, mental development and visualization and exercises that we can borrow from traditions such as like Raja yoga and hermetics, things like this that really learn, really give us the ability to focus our mind. And then when we have this capacity, then we can, it's not only about pushing ourselves beyond our comfort zone, but we have a level of self-awareness and self-control that can allow us to control our emotional state, our state of arousal, so that in a very stressful situation, we can be calm. If we need to lift ourselves up when the environment is very, uh, doesn't have energy and very flat, we can do that. If we're in a dangerous environment, a situation, we can control ourselves to think what we wanna think and feel what we wanna feel so that we can be playful. And if we're dealing with someone who's very hostile and angry, we have the self-awareness that we can feel our organism changing, our nervous system changing to fight or flight and step in and calm it down. And in dealing with this hostile and angry person, we don't become hostile, angry, and ignorant. We remain calm. We control ourselves so that we can be kind and loving and relaxed. And in doing so, we will relax them because their nervous system will no longer perceive us as threatening then they'll actually listen to us. So it's by approaching sport as a path to self-mastery, using it as a way to have very extreme experiences that allow us to push ourselves very, very far to force ourselves to grow much more than if we would have a, a mediocre life as a regular person. You grow still through experiences, but you wouldn't have as many or as many frequent extreme experiences as you would if you were an elite athlete or elite swimmer. And I, I mentor some athletes from different sports and I, I really um, try to get them to understand that it's a path to self-mastery. And the more self-control and self-awareness you have, the better you're gonna be able to, to perform, the better you're gonna be able to, to cultivate the right state of arousal. And then in the competition, you're gonna have that much more self-control to push yourself further outside your comfort zone. And you're going to even have the self-control to speak to yourself in your mind with the words that you need to hear when you need to hear them. Because so often it's at the moment 
when we are our weakest, that we speak to ourselves with the words that make us weaker. It's like when we're the most tired, we tell ourselves, oh, I'm so tired. Oh, I don't know if I can do it. And the doubt creeps in. But if your mind is strong enough and you've trained your mind, then when it gets hard, you're giving yourselves yourself words that empower you, pump you up. You're speaking Conor McGregor language to yourself. You're, you're guaranteeing that you're going to do it and you're pumping yourself up. Because we have to understand that a word is not just a piece of language. It's a package of energy, of emotion. And then when you have enough self-awareness and self-control, you can give yourself the energy you need when you need it. So that's all part of training the rider. And then if we're going to think along these lines, and this is the perfect um, place to share this idea, if we need to understand something I've learned from the traditional Amazonian medicine, we need to look at health in a very holistic way and see that health is not just my physical health but it entails health of my body, my mind, and like my spirit, my energy, my, my um, emotions, my willpower. And that if we look at nature, Coleman, anything in nature that is really strong, it's healthy. Health and strength, they go together. Anything in nature that is very weak, it's sick. Now, a gazelle, when it's healthy and strong on a very deep inner level, it knows it's healthy and strong. It knows that whatever happens, it, it'll be okay because it's so strong and so healthy. So it has zero fear. And that gazelle with zero fear exudes confidence and it can eat grass right in front of the lion. And the lion knows, don't even try to chase that gazelle. That gazelle knows that I can't catch it. I know based on how confident that gazelle is that I'm not going to be able to catch it. So the lion ignores the gazelle. The lion goes looking for the sick and weak gazelle that exudes fear. And that fear is like a dinner bell. It says, eat me. It's telling everybody that it's, it is not strong. It's weak. And that's the thing. When we are weak, we are unhealthy. But the thing is, it's a feedback loop. So I'll start with health. When we are healthy, we think in healthy ways. So we naturally want what's good for us. And getting what's good for us makes us even more healthy. And with this health that I'm talking about, of body, mind, and spirit, it is the ability to think clearly. It is improved situational awareness. It is increased self-awareness. It is increased willpower because willpower is inner strength. It's increased self-control. And when you're very healthy and something bad comes to tempt you, you have the willpower, the strength to resist the temptation because you're healthy. And you have the ability to think clearly because you're healthy. You're thinking in a healthy way. You can recognize that's bad for me. So when you're healthy, you don't want what's bad for you. So in this way, health, the more healthy you are, the more you want what's good for you, which makes you even more healthy. And it's an upward spiral that is the essentially victory energy. It's life energy. Victory energy. And a healthy person, a really healthy person or a healthy animal that is so strong and it feels very secure with itself. It feels very safe. This is the essence of natural leadership, exuding this type of calm confidence. Other people are attracted 
other animals, other people are attracted to this energy because it, it guarantees the future. It says everything is going to be okay. And they feel safe with this person. So that person who has that energy has that strength and health, self-awareness, self-control, willpower, is a natural leader. Now let's look at sickness. So sickness is also weakness, but it's also unconsciousness. You're less aware. You uh, have less willpower, less self-control. So it's a downward spiral. So when you're sick, you're thinking in a sick way, which makes you want what's bad for you, which makes you even sicker, which makes you less aware, less willpower, less self-control. So you're more tempted by the bad stuff. So we see this in addictions all the time, drug addictions, alcohol addictions, any addiction. It's our willpower is getting weaker and our self-awareness that we are getting sicker. We're losing that. So the more sick we get, the less aware we are that we are getting sick and weak. And this is a downward spiral that leads to decay, ignorance, passivity. And death, it's death energy, whereas health is life energy. Now, if we want to apply this to swimming or athletics, the more healthy you are, the better athlete you're going to be. Your performance can only be an expression of you, how healthy and how strong, how much willpower, how much self-awareness, how much self-control do you have? It's victory energy, it's life energy in its purest. But when you're sick, that's the sickness that's going to have the doubt. It's the sickness that's going to have the fear. That's the weakness. And if we are sick and weak, we cannot perform well. So if we want to be the best version of ourselves in life, in athletics, in sport, in swimming, we need to look at everything in a very binary way and say, what is good for me? What is medicine? What is poison that makes me sicker? What is the medicine that makes me stronger in my life? And go through everything and cut out systematically the things that weaken us and include more of the things that make us strong, that make us more healthy. And in this way, we can pull out of a negative downward spiral and start to get a faster, stronger upward spiral to health and strength and willpower and self-awareness and self-control and victory energy and life. So if you want to be your best version of yourself as an athlete, you need to look at your food. This is where I love Ayurveda. Ayurveda has got an operating manual for how to do this. Your food, your relationships, your relationships can be medicinal or poisonous. Your environment can be medicinal or poisonous. Your media that you're consuming can be medicinal or poisonous. And of course, very importantly, your self-talk. How are you speaking to yourself? Are those medicinal words and phrases or poisonous words and phrases? And it's really a choice. And when you are healthy, you wholeheartedly don't want what's bad for you. And you want more of what's good for you. But when you're sick, you don't know you're sick. You don't understand. You're just passive. You're operating on instincts. You're not entirely aware. It's like your bio robots running on the installed hardware programs. So... This is something that I think is very important and we need to take this holistic approach, not just to our health, but to our performance as well. And try to be as healthy and as strong as possible. And real strength is the inner strength. So we need to cultivate that as much as we can. And that's what I mean by training the rider and the horse, the Shaolin monk style of mastery in the sport. 
So for if, if, if I'm a young listener <clears throat> right now, you know, I mean, I think uh, I, I really like everything you said. And I think that's obviously come from years of, of, of travel, of learning, of wisdom. Um, you know, if I'm a young swimmer, how do I apply that to, to trying to, you know, go a best time in the hundred freestyle or trying to, you know, win my district or high school state championship? Um, you know, what are, what are, what are the applications of, of what you're saying? Right, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, firstly, we need to have um, the awareness of what's good for us and what's bad for us. So maybe you're training hard, but then you're staying up late on Instagram, playing video games. So you're taking one step forward, but two steps back. Maybe you are, we have to also take into account that uh, the state of our nervous system can also be medicinal or poisonous. And our, our organism, our bio-robots, through evolution, it's designed to survive in an environment that's very different from today. There are so many things that subconsciously stress our organism, like coffee, for example, um, social media, TV. Our organism doesn't know the difference between what we're seeing on TV and real life. It's like a dumb horse. <laughs> it stresses us, you know, and our cortisol will raise. Our nervous system will move more to the sympathetic, which is fight or flight. Mm-hmm. And when our nervous system is in the fight or flight, we're going to respond to people, to situations from fear and aggression. We're not going to be the best version of ourselves. But very importantly, when we're in this state, our organism is, pro- is programmed to look out for danger and prioritize short-term survival over long-term maintenance. So you need to develop some self-awareness to be like, all right, what is the state of my nervous system now? Is my way of being right now, is it medicinal or poisonous? And check in with your organism and learn to check in with your organism routinely throughout the day. Even in a set, in training, are you tense? Breathe, relax yourself. Because if we're thinking in terms of the rider and the horse, the more relaxed I keep my horse, the better my horse is going to listen to my instructions, the more control I'm going to have over this beast. So in this way, we need to check in with our organism and say, how's my breathing? I'm breathing really shallow. Wow, my nervous system is stressed. Maybe look at my, how is my body language? Is my body language open, relaxed? Or is my body language very tense and closed up? How is my, um, what's my tongue doing? When we're stressed, we tend to push our tongue against the roof of our mouth. And then very importantly, we have so many nerves in our face. What are the facial muscles doing? Am I frowning? Am I tense? Am I... <laughs> and if we learn to relax this, we have so many nerves that it sends a very powerful signal to our nervous system that tells our organism that everything is okay. So we can learn to turn the corners of our mouth up. It sends, that's telling your horse everything is okay. Lift your eyebrows a little bit. Breathe. If you want to feel your best, you have to breathe your breast. If you just let your organism breathe itself, it will only breathe enough to keep itself alive. So you got to breathe your best. And if the breath is wandering, the mind is also wandering. So if you want to get control over your mind, you got to get control over your breath. And it's through getting control of facial muscles, body language, breathing, 
that we get control over our nervous system. And the nervous system is the link to the brain chemistry and the mind. So the state of arousal of your nervous system is dictating what type of thoughts you're gonna have. So if you wanna be the best version of yourself, the best athlete you can be, the best person you can be, you have to first become aware of yourself because anything outside of our awareness is outside of our control. So if you wanna be a good athlete, if you're a young teenager up and coming in the sport, you have to take this not just into the pool and in the gym, but you gotta take this into your life and learn to be like, all right, let me get control over myself. And in order to get control over myself, I need to get aware of my organism. It's like, I'm the rider on the horse. I need to learn to look down and see if my horse is tense or relaxed. Is it fighting me when I pull the reins or is it willingly going where I want it to go? And that's like a foundational aspect that will carry over into every other area of life. And the thing is, I would also tell these young athletes to, to examine their approach to the sport. Coleman, brother, I think it's our culture, but a lot of parents give conditional love to their children. I will love you when you are good and I won't love you when you're bad. When you do well, I will give you praise and um, adore you. When you're not doing well, I'm just tired of you, don't bother me. So we learn in an unconscious way, our organism learns that in order to be worthy, to, to receive love, we need to be worthy of love. Now these little kids who get damaged in this way, they grow up and they go into sport and they become athletes. And there is this fear-based way of competing where it's based on the fear of not being judged worthy of love, of not being good enough, not being good enough of love from everybody outside that's what we all want in the end is love and most importantly they're terrified that they're not going to be judged worthy of their own love so these competitions instead of being enjoyable experiences where we go after the challenge as an opportunity to grow as a person we are dread them many young athletes i see them they are so nervous they look gray i look at their nervous systems and their body language and their breathing their facial muscles their organisms are so stressed because for them, it is this test to see if they are worthy of, of love, to, to see if they are worthy of being called a good person. And very importantly, it's a test to see if they are worthy of their own love. Now, if you can examine this and say, well, why am I really competing? Why do I need to win at all costs? Because very often it is the, the athletes who need to win at all costs are the ones who feel like the biggest losers deep down inside. They feel the most unworthy of love. And if you can go in and really be introspective and realize, okay, I am imperfect. And in sport, we hold ourselves up to this imagined ideal of perfection. But as an imperfect being to be compared to this perfect ideal, that is a way to suffer terribly. And if we can accept I'm perfectly imperfect, I have limits, <laughs> I, I get weak sometimes and accept your imperfections, then you no longer have to prove anything to anybody. You accept yourself, you love yourself, you're worthy of your own love, you're perfectly imperfect. You have good days, you have bad days. And when you can do that in a very deep level as a young athlete, as a young person, it's gonna unlock the magic 
of sport as a path to self-mastery because then you can approach a race no longer as a judgment if I'm worthy of my own love or worthy of, of being accepted by the people who, I, who are important to me. You can approach it as a path to self-mastery where you're no longer competing. And because you're not competing, you can't be beaten. You are practicing an art form. And don't get me wrong, when I say art form, I don't mean it has to be gentle like painting or knitting or something. A 50 freestyle can be very aggressive, powerful, fiery form of art, but it can be an art form. And when you can operate from this level and transcend that lower level of fear-based competing and start practicing as an, it as an art form from a level of, of love-based, then it, your, your way of life will change. You'll be so much more healthy, so much more happy. You'll actually enjoy what you do instead of of dread these competitions and at the competition itself, you're gonna be able to bring out a type of, of energy that's based on love and it'll be so much more powerful than the fear of, of not being good enough or the fear of not getting what you want. But it, the thing is when we want something, I want that result, it simultaneously brings the fear of not getting it. So you can transcend that completely and get up to the level where I'm practicing the art form as a method to improve my self-awareness and my self-control and grow as a person. Now, I, I know how, how are we doing for time. There's like one more thing I would like to, to segue into if we have a um, um, couple of minutes. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the floor is yours. Okay, so I see this all the time. You know, I, I had to go through five Olympics to understand, to, to see the Olympics clearly. And they say that like waking up is a very destructive process. It's the melting away of illusions. And the Olympics, the idea of the Olympics, the idea of what the media calls an athlete, a, a sportsman, uh, a swimmer, these illusions really melted away for me. And, and I saw the Olympics clearly, in my opinion, as something like a grand reality TV show. Mm -hmm. And an athlete isn't more of an entertainer. You're an entertainer in this grand reality TV show that billions of people around the world watch. And TV networks sell commercials for hundreds of millions of dollars on. And the IOC sells the TV rights to certain networks for billions and billions of dollars. You're a reality TV show contestant. So if you think you are this athlete, this swimmer, you're on the path to suffering because you're, you're caught up in illusion. You need to see it clearly that I'm practicing an art form as a way to grow as a person so I can have increased self-control and self-awareness. Now I look at my swimming years, five Olympics, as my mental and physical slavery years. That's a very extreme thing to say. I know your, your audience is probably like, what is this guy talking about? But I reached a point where I was so disenchanted with um, the sport. I was getting into the, I thought I wanted to get into the IOC. And to do that, I got into the Pan American Sports Organization as a delegate from Trinidad. And I started to see the type of people who were in there. Uh, Maglioni was the head of FINA. He was the head of that organization. He was changing the FINA constitution so he could hold on to power. The previous head of the Pan American Sport Organization was in power for 40 years. 
I started to see these guys who were behind these sporting bodies and how they ran it for their personal gain. And they're always going to these different conferences, driven around with drivers, fancy resorts. And I started to see the Olympics for what it was. And, um, and then at that time, the McLaren report was coming out of all the doping and how I, confronting Maglioni, I realized that the governing body of governing bodies of these different sports love the media attention that sensational performances garner. And they have an interest to make it sensational. So they want to give the, the appearance that they care about doping, but sensational performances, some of which come from doping, are very profitable for them. They make a lot of people tune in and watch. We've seen this with the Tour de France. The Tour de France got popular when it became very sensational. And I started to see this whole illusion melt away and um, it was a very difficult, heartbreaking experience for me. But I see how the people who get really caught up in this, they suffer terribly. Now, to become really great, like sport, remember I touched on, the Greeks said it's peacetime war. Like you got to make yourself hard to be really good in sport. You got to make yourself tough. You have to learn to endure. You have to learn to push yourself way outside your comfort zone. And you're doing this regularly every day. And this way of making yourself very hard, you have to turn off a part of your being that really feels the pain so you can endure, so you can continue to push yourself, push yourself, sacrifice, suffer, grind. That common expression, everybody says, I'm grinding for that shine. Grinding. Now, in turning off the part of yourself that feels the pain, you're also turning off the part of yourself that judges when things are hard and difficult, so you can just keep going. But by turning off the part of ourselves that feels the pain, we're also turning off the part of ourselves that really feels the pleasure in life. And in turning off the part of our mind that judges when things are bad, we're also turning off the part of our mind that celebrates when things are really good. So we see a lot of these people who get to the extremes in sport, these people who do incredible things, they become like robot people. They don't feel, they're always in the plan, they can endure, they can push, they can grind. They're incredible at what they can do, but what they're doing makes them sick. Like you have to, to, to become the person who is capable of those sensational, amazing things. You have to be, turn, become a little bit crazy to be capable of going that far to do those incredible things. Do you follow me? Absolutely. So you got to make yourself a little bit crazy to be able to go to that extreme. And this type of craziness where you can't really feel much anymore. It leads people to only feel half alive. You're just going through your life in shades of gray. So we see this with many athletes, um, Tiger Woods, like so many athletes. That it's Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps. Where like they, they go and they pursue things that are not good for them. That gives them a rush. That makes them feel temporarily alive. Mm-hmm. But these are things that are always short-term gain, long-term pain. It's things that make them sicker, make them less self-aware, that make them weaker. And they, they go into these downward spirals. And that's very sad. And I think that happens when we, we have this very unhealthy approach to the sport. And we turn ourselves into the, 
a very extreme character who becomes a little bit crazy. And I think if you really want to do sport, we need to say, all right, right, right. What am I doing? I'm practicing an art form to become a better person. Let's keep this in perspective. Let's approach this in a healthy way. And in doing so, a lot of people won't go to those extremes that cause them to suffer so much down the road. It's very true. And, and um, we see it all the time, all the time. And it's not only in sport. We see it also in, sometimes with veterans as well. Um, it's anytime you go too far towards the extremes, you become very imbalanced and it makes you very sick. And it's like you're being all knife all the time with no handle. It's like you're all blade all the time with no handle. You need to be balanced. So when it's extreme, life or death, difficult time, you can be very hard. But also when it's relaxing and gentle and you're around people you really love and life is good, you can be soft and relaxed and open to feel and, and be present. That's the health. That's the balance. The balance. That's, that's a lot of insight. That's, that's a lot to digest. Um, but I really appreciate you, you taking the time to, to come on here and, and share all this because I think uh, I think this is really important to hear, really important to consider. And again, you've traveled the world, you've seen <clears throat> a lot of things that many others haven't and studied a lot that that many others might not have even heard of. But um, in those mental and physical slavery years, you know, I became a fanatic to be that good at something that that focused at something, you've got to sacrifice a lot of other things. And when you're a fanatic, you never know you're a fanatic because you end up being surrounded by other fanatics. So you think it's normal. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a lot of fanatics out there and um, they think it's normal. They can't see it what it is. They're so caught up in it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think to do something at an elite level, I would, I would guess you kind of have to have to go to that point or you just think you do. And, um, you know, maybe some of the things you're saying, uh, we could, we could learn a thing or two about what elite sport could look like, uh, one day moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, a healthy, a balanced approach and the idea of training the horse and training the rider. I think that that is a good takeaway for sure. And something that I'll, that I would like to consider further because that, that seems like a very balanced way to approach sport, to approach life. There's a lot of ancient wisdom that would be really cool to incorporate. So um, when I was in India, those all those visits and all those months, um, my teacher there is um, not only a Vedic scholar and an Ayurvedic physician, but a great yoga practitioner. He's learned yoga that he taught me, he learned from his guru. His guru learned it from his guru. And it comes directly down the line from, from great yogis in the Himalayas. And there's some things that come from these breathing exercises called pranayama that have amazing effects on the physiology of the body and health. It's like giving yourself medicine. And some of them are very miserable. They're very difficult to do. But they have amazing effects on your health that can make you fitter, can increase your body's VO2 max, lactic acid threshold, aerobic capacity, just by doing a fraction of the amount of work, but doing it specifically on the right systems. 
it's like biohacking in the coolest way. And it, it takes a lot of time to develop proficiency, of course, and not easy. And once you become proficient, the effects get so much more powerful. And if we can include these things in, in, into swimming, if I was a coach, I'd be training the rider and the horse. My swimmers would be doing pranayama, yoga. So they'd be like, first, the foundation would be to become healthy. Then the foundation would be to become a great warrior, an athlete, aggressive, take on challenges, embrace them, don't shy away, mental strength. So I'd take these healthy young human beings, I'd evolve them into like warriors, you know, because you got to be aggressive out there. You know, we, we're trying to beat people. Let's not get confused. We're practicing an art form, but it's aggressive. And then I would focus them after being athletic and healthy into becoming specifically good swimmers with a holistic approach, borrowing from all of these ancient modalities and incorporating into something like Shaolin monk. I don't know what the modern version would be, but that would, that's where the, the, the sport has to go, I think. And um, I have the guys that I mentor, I teach them pranayama and, and how to eat, how to take care of their organism based on Ayurvedic wisdom. And it's, it's the way forward. I wish, I just wish I had known this when I was still a fanatic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it would have made uh, so much difference. And you heard it here first. Uh, George Pavel is is training monk warriors in the pool one one of these days. Actually, in all sports, cycling, sailing. Wow, nice. Uh, uh, that's that's really that's really cool. Um, George, thank you so much for your time and for for coming onto the podcast and, and sharing this wisdom um, that you may not have had as, as a fanatic, but hopefully can, can positively impact our current fanatics. Mm -hmm. Well, I hope um, this, this is a successful medium for reaching out and I hope that this touches who it's meant to touch. And um, if you can help somebody somewhere, then I'm very happy and glad that we put this out there. And if you want to reach me, you can find me on um, Instagram. I'm kind of a uh, low profile, but it's just georgebovell.live. You've been listening to the Swim Swam podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes every week. You can take Swim Swam podcast on the go by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Look for links in the description below and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more videos as well.